While you're finding uh, Proverbs chapter 22, I just want to uh, share some good news. We completed our global mission offering last week. Our goal was $120,000 over six months, and uh, our church gave over $125,000, so that'll be divided uh, 45% to international missions, Lottie Moon, 35 to Annie Armstrong for North American missions, and 20% to help fund our own mission efforts and trips that will be taking place throughout this year. So we give the Lord praise uh, for that and for the faithfulness of our people to give. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this time. Now we pray that you would help us as we draw our attention to your word, give us your strength. And Lord, um, just to be able to give you everything of ourselves right now to hear you in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the first time I took piano lessons. I was out of high school and uh, somehow or another ended up singing a lot in my church and in the community at um, like city events and things of that nature. And so I formally wanted to uh, pursue playing the piano. I ended up trying to um, almost minor in, in music in college. I shifted toward the end as the Lord had changed my direction to get out a little bit earlier. I don't know who, I, uh, who recommended the woman I found to be my teacher. Uh, perhaps I found an ad. I don't recall. I do recall that her house was not far from my house where I lived with my parents. It was up a little hill toward the elementary school that I had attended. Uh, when I arrived the first time, I remember um, entering a home that had a distinct smell to it. And the woman, probably in her late 60s, wearing this uh, long flowing robe outfit with really stringy, long gray hair, and she had a monkey in a cage. (laughs) So let's just say that uh, after a few weeks of lessons, uh, I determined this was not the best training (laughs) environment and regimen that I could find, and so The monkey lady and I, and she was a nice lady, but the monkey lady and I, we didn't continue continue our training together. I don't know why that is so funny to me. Uh, Well, this morning we we do continue our series, Biblical Principles for the Ride of a Lifetime, beginning to wind this down and probably begin to shift gears as we move toward... uh, Easter. There may be a few more messages though, but today we're going to examine a very famous verse applied to parenting that is related to the concept of training. Now the other messages are available online and so up to this point I've been kind of recapping the whole thing for you, but we're so far in now that if I recap we'll have a whole message of doing that. So if you're new to the series or if you've missed some of the messages, I encourage you to find the, uh, the messages online at the website or the church app. Today, I simply want us to move forward in a message entitled, Train Up a Child. And I want you to look in your Bibles at Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Perhaps you've heard this verse before. Start children off on the way they should go, or train up a child in the way he should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. How many of you have ever heard that verse applied to parenting? (laughs) 
Okay. I cannot even begin to count the times I have heard this verse quoted regarding the task of parenting. It's one of those bumper sticker verses we kind of have in, in Christianity, in American Christianity, that everybody thinks they know what it says and they know what it means. But in reality, this verse should be included in a list of the most misused, misunderstood verses in the Bible. But since it is used and quoted so much as a template or a promise for parenting, I think it's one we need to visit and interact with. And so that is my task this morning in a message simply entitled, Train Up a Child. I have two basic main points. I'm probably going to stick close to the pulpit today. Let me just uh, start us off by talking about this. First of all, what we know that this verse does not mean for sure. This is a verse we hear all the time. We think we know what it means, but as people tell us what they think it means, they really don't understand what it means. Since this is a bumper sticker verse, one that is thrown up often, we, we must begin with the negative what does it not mean? This verse is often used as a promise that people can claim to assure them regarding the outcome of their parenting as believers. If I bring them up right before the Lord, there's the promise that they will turn out right. And even if they stray for a while, they can't depart from it, they're going to eventually come home. Prodigal is going to eventually return. That is a promise from God. That's how this is used. So young parents claim it in that fashion. People for whom things have gone generally well in their parenting, well, they will quote it as though it worked for us and it'll work for you. Yet parents who've had a more difficult time, disappointments, heartbreaking times, They often feel crushed under the weight of how this verse is used, indicted by it. Now, if it was saying that if you do this, God will do this, and you can count this as a promise, and that does not take place, then we as believers should bear the weight of the responsibility that it didn't turn out right. But that isn't what the verse is saying. What we do know for sure is that none of that is right. And so for time's sake, let me just summarize why, what this verse does not mean. First of all, we need to remember when we open our Bible, I want you to say this with me, what book are we in this morning? Proverbs. And we must remember that Proverbs are not promises. Can you say that with me? Proverbs are not promises. Let's say that again. We'll do a Joel Osteen. Promise are not promises. Proverbs are not promises. All right. So, you know, when we deal with interpreting the Bible, we must remember that in our Bibles, there are different types of literature. And so, to interpret the Bible correctly, we always have to take that into consideration. So, in the Bible, we have poetry. We have a big book of poetry. I read from it this morning. What's it called? Psalms, songs, Hebrew poetry written in a lot of it in parallelism, sometimes written in like an alphabetic acrostic, such as Psalm 119, that every section begins with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So those are songs. You have narrative, historical passages. In the New Testament, we have epistles or letters. We have some apocalyptic literature like Revelation, parts of Daniel. 
And then in the Bible as well, we have figures of speech or rhetorical devices like hyperbole. So as an example, if you turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, we hear Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount just for teaching's sake this morning. If your right eye causes you, to, causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And so when we read this, we take Jesus' words literally, do we not? Yes, we do, but not in the way that people use the word literally. We don't physically remove our eyes because of sin and struggles with sin, because Jesus here is using a figure of speech. He is using hyperbole to talk about the seriousness of our sin and the eternal consequences of it. And so we interpret this hyperbole according to the rules of literature. That goes deep in the 500-year history of the Reformation. With Martin Luther, we interpret the Bible by using the rules of grammar, the rules of literature, and other things in relationship to it. But we don't ignore, ignore though, the, the rules of literature. So Jesus is using a figure of speech. We take that literally according to the rules of literature. Jesus is speaking hyperbole, and so he's not telling me literally to pluck my eyes out of my head. By the way, when you hear people seek to lampoon Christians who seek to be faithful to the Bible as hayseeds who take the Bible literally, just know that they are the ones expressing profound ignorance of who we are and how we've handled the Bible for 500 years. Especially disturbing with people in the press who do this, who supposedly have been to university and are educated, but show profound ignorance about what we mean when we say we take the Bible literally. We mean that we interpret it according to the rules of literature. So we recognize different types of literature, different devices that are there, as we do in other literature. And so when we turn to the book of Proverbs, we know that these are not commands. These are not spiritual promises, even. Proverbs are short, pithy sayings of wisdom. This is wisdom literature. And so basically, these are general principles. Generally, it is saying that This is kind of how things unfold in relationship to how you do life. So generally, if you're the guy who is chasing after another man's wife, it's not going to go well for you. Generally, if you're the person who's lingering long over the wine, it's not going to go well for you in your life. On the other hand, if you seek to walk in this particular way, things will generally go well for you in your life. So Proverbs has tremendous amounts of wisdom. And so at best, if we apply that here to Proverbs 22, this would say generally, if you seek to train your child, generally things will turn out better than if you don't. So this would be much more hope than promise. This is not a promise. It is a hope. And it is a general principle for raising children in that way, if you take it in that understanding. Never should this be used as a promise. Never should it be used as a formula. Never should it be used as something that this is going to guarantee an outcome. Never should it be used to beat somebody down when it didn't turn out well for them as though they messed up in some particular way. 
That's not what a proverb is, and so we should not use the verse in that way. So please put that to bed and help your friends do so as well. So then secondly, my second main point today is general principles. What can we say then? Frankly, this is a brief verse. It's very short. And there's no real order in Proverbs 22. It's just, you know, different sayings that are popped. It's hard to find a structure in Proverbs 22, like a train of thought. But this verse has had a, a lot of ink spilled about it. And there's no consensus about its meaning. One thing we do know is that it does have something to do with training the next generation. It does have something to do with an older person being involved with someone younger, or perhaps we'll see in a moment, someone older neglecting to be involved with someone younger. And so I think the best approach of this verse today and dealing with it in relationship to parenting is to look at the spectrum of applications in relationship to the verse. That is, the spectrum of applications that I think are both true and that are also faithful to the possible understandings of this verse. And so the remainder of the message today will be dealing with that. So we have gotten out of the way what it is not about. Now let's talk about the range of things that we can learn from this verse about parenting. What are some general principles that we can apply from this? Let me share several with you in uh, no particular order of importance, but just flowing out of um, different ways people have approached this verse. The first general principle that we can perhaps ascertain from this verse is, is don't coast when your kids hit the teen years. Don't coast in your parenting when your kids began to move into the teen years, older teen years. In recent years, some very fine scholars of the Old Testament have argued that this verse has been really misunderstood and that it is written more toward the youth group than it is toward the children's ministry, written more toward teenagers than it is toward children. Now, let me kind of walk you through this. You may want to make some notes in your Bible just to remember this. Because of the use of the word child here, Start children off. Bring up a child. Because of the use of this word in other places in Proverbs, these scholars argue that it's directed more toward the young man, the young single man or woman, the teenager. And if you look at how the word child is used in Proverbs, that's, there's a lot of truth to that. It's usually directed to that age group here when that's, that word is used. And so in this sense, they would argue that The text is actually talking about the parent who neglects to raise him or her in this particular phase of life. It's about the neglectful parent. So in this sense, this verse is directed to bad or neglectful parents versus good parents. And these scholars would argue next, a very important word in this verse. You'll notice that uh, start children off on the way they should go. These scholars would argue that, um, that that word should is not supported by the Hebrew text. That that is not the best word for here. The word should should be omitted, they would argue. It goes back to when the King James Version translators inserted it, following some other translations before them. But they would argue the word should should not be there. 
And so the phrase then would go that uh, train, uh, start children off according to their way. That is, the way they should go is better according to his way. So raise a teenager in his way. That is, the way he or she naturally is. Without training him or her. The point is that they will not depart from that. So their argument is this, basically, that when your children reach that point, some people just take a hands-off approach, letting them choose for themselves. And the text is actually saying to do that is a disaster. The point is you must still fight against the folly in the heart of children as they move out to encounter the world more. And you must also stay involved to protect them from their own ignorance in their lives at that particular point. So when it's saying that train up a child or train a child according to their way, that is that you just let them go their way, then they will establish patterns of life that they will not leave when they move into adulthood and it could be disastrous. And again, there are some very, very fine Hebrew scholars who argue that that is how the text needs to be understood. And so now the general principle would be that as they age, we don't need to be helicopter parents or overbearing micromanagers. You have to learn to begin to let the rope out as they age. But we need to, need, do need to stay involved with accountability of, uh, <clears throat> of who you're with, where you're going, accountability in things like media, who is supervising events. Don't always assume that parental supervision is good supervision. When your kids say, well, you know, his His mom and dad are going to be there, and I'll tell you why about that in a moment. Know who the parents are. It means continue to seek to apply and teach God's Word in your home and apply it to their situations, talking about things with them, listening when they're ready to talk. And for us, that often happened late at night. I don't know if that was your experience or not, but that was the time sometimes that we would have long talks late at night. So once you grow up, and I want to go to bed, go to sleep. <laughs> the point is that while the teen years are you know, the most turbulent because of all the things going on and the changes in their lives, the tendency often is to pull back as they naturally begin to seek to assert themselves toward adulthood, which is natural. And that's not a bad thing. But understand they are not yet adults. And you and I must try to stay engaged. And I want to say this this morning to you, and I know prom, I think it was prom last night. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad I don't have that anymore. <laughs> I used to be so tired on Sunday mornings after prom. Let me just say this, though. If, um, if you're a student who has parents who are getting on your nerves <laughs> because they are hands-on, because they hold you accountable, because they still correct you, because they still want to know where you are, who you're with, what you were doing, when you're going to be in, and they find out these things about you. Well, thank God for them, because God is showing you great love to give you parents like that in your life. You may not realize it right now, but He is. Now, I did not have to learn this lesson uh, later as a parent. I learned this in high school uh, for myself. It happened one night when I was over to a person's home. A friend of mine, fellow athlete in high school with a bunch of guys. We had dinner at his house. We were hanging out, shooting pool. 
Here I am, a skinny 17-year-old kid. And for some reason, um, the guy's mom in her 40s, attractive lady, she'd been drinking, I think. Well, I know, because I smelled her breath. She started hitting on me. You say, well, how do you know? Well, I mean, you know, sometimes there are subtleties, right? Right, sometimes there are subtleties, and you read signals. Let me just say, she was not subtle. (laughs) So she came over and started talking to me, and got a drink, came back, offered me a drink. I was sitting there on a little stool with my cue stick, and she crawled up in my lap. Started saying things to me that she should not have been saying. Still gives me the creeps. I think think I almost threw her in the floor. Uh, Getting out of there as fast as I could. But what was more disturbing was that she went to church with me. At my church. I never went back to the house, but I learned something from that that I've always remembered that always find out who the parents are, what they're really like, as best you can. You can't always do that in every situation, but we must try to do that and stay involved. I know it's a creepy story, but started not to tell you, but I did. Now, on the whole, though, that view of the verse, that it is applied more to the youth group than to the children's group, that's not the majority view. Most still apply this to the rearing and the teaching of a child. But other things have been teased out of that in relationship to the language that are good principles as well. So let me share a few of those principles with you now in relationship to both children, and this will apply up through the teen years as well. Train up a child. I think that according to his way is the best use. I think the word should, it's pretty clear, you know, should not be there in that sense. According to his way. And so a better rendering then is according to his way or upon the mouth of his way. And people would apply this to children and they would allude to Proverbs chapter 30, if you would turn over there for a moment, verses 18 and 19, to think about this idea of the way. Train up a child according to their way. And if you go to Proverbs 30 verses 18 and 19, the writer says that there are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. Here, the idea is that the word way applies more to the characteristic manner of the person. In other words, if you think about the eagle has its way, right? Its characteristic manner. The snake has a characteristic manner. The ship on the sea. The way of a man with a young woman. And so the application is, the template would be this. That this refers more to the manner of the person rather than to the path. Now, a lot of Proverbs... 
The whole book, a lot of it, focuses on the path of the way. Train up a child in the path or the way he or she should go to talking about the way of virtue as opposed to the way of sin. And that is certainly a strong theme through Proverbs. And some would say that's simply all the verse is talking about, training them in the way of virtue as opposed to the way of sin. But I think the argument can be made, as some do, and I'm just giving you sort of the panoply of how people have interpreted it and some of the uh, applications, that it can talk about the characteristic manner, and we can learn a lot from that. That is that, that we want to focus upon the, the character of this person. And so there's a broader application. And so from this, then, there have been other applications of the verse growing up out of this. Train a child according to his way, that is, according to his characteristics, according to how he or she has been made. Study your child. That's the point. And so let's flesh this out a bit more. What is it saying then? Train up a child according to his way. Well, A principle growing out of that would be to start early. You'll notice here in the passage where it says start off in the NIV, start children off, or train up in many of your translations. The word train carries with it the idea of dedicate or consecrate. It's used only four times in the Old Testament. Three times in relationship to dedicating a building and once here for a child. And in some Semitic languages, it comes from a stem related to the roof or the lower part of the mouth. And here's how that works. Some see here something related to a practice at that time whereby a midwife dealing with a newborn baby, so the baby's been born, the midwife has the baby, right? That she would dip her finger in a pool of crushed dates, and then she would massage the palate or the gums of the baby, and what that would do is it would, uh, it would uh, trigger the baby's sucking instinct, right? So nursing could begin quickly. We'll be having a parent-child dedication here in the very near future. And the point in that, having that observance here, this word train means dedicate. It means from the very beginning, we must be determined to train or to lead and not stop. It's a big task. So it's centrally related, as we said last time, to gospel work, sharing the gospel with them, but start early. Secondly, another principle related to this idea of training according to their way would be to seek to inspire more than coerce. That is, this picture of triggering the sucking of a baby is the principle of seeking more to inspire them to something than to coerce. There's a lot of natural things that are there. And so you want to try to play upon those things and trigger those things in their life. So in this, we recognize that every child is different. And we need to seek to learn who they are and guide where they're needed according to their way. Now that can be in relationship to the way of discipline, of where they need to be corrected and how they need to be corrected. Not all children need to be corrected in the same way. Not all have the same particular tendencies of sin. Whereas not all have the same tendency to virtues, but some have different types of tendencies to virtues. Some have different bents in their life, like some have a great desire to serve. And that would be a great thing to build upon in helping them in their life. Building upon those strengths that are there already. Helping bring those things out in their life. Helping those things that God has placed in them to begin to help 
them define who they are because evidently God has placed some of that within them. You remember in the book of Genesis chapter 25, I want you to turn there, where we have a couple of twins born. They are fraternal twins, not identical, apparently. Two boys. And the Bible says about them in Genesis 25, in verses 24 through 32, it says, when the time came for her, this would be Rebecca, for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Notice they're different. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And they just turned differently. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the Copan country, famished, and he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also for, uh, called Edom, which means red. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. He says, look, I'm about to die, which he's not, but he's just a man of the senses, right? He's a man who's impetuous. He's a man who just reacts in his life. He's not a thoughtful guy. He just wants to have a need met. He's hungry. He's been out in the field. And so um, Jacob says, well, tell me your birthright. And he said, look, I'm about to die. What good is my birthright? So Jacob made him swear to sell him his birthright. So as you raise Jacob and Esau, one of them would have had the tendency, Esau, right, to a guy that you've got to deal with, right, your nature that reacts to things in a particular way, without thinking, pinhead, because you just sold your birthright. Pretty important thing. Jacob, on the other hand, he loved to be on the inside, he loved to cook, we see here in the text, and he was also a liar. He had a propensity for lying. And it was a central thing about who he was in his life. One of the things God had to conquer in his life over time. And so the principle then is we want to inspire versus coerce, but we have to understand they're all different and we want to move in the right directions with the things where there are strengths, weaknesses, and apply that in many different areas of, of discipline as well as positive training. Another application we must remember when it says train up a child in the way that they should go according to their way would be that we must remember age and gender. We must remember the stages of life and learning and follow these with the approaches and methods of whatever literature you use or what you're dealing with with them at a point of life where they're preschoolers versus middle schoolers. And I want to say this about our church because we truly want to be a church that helps parents. Our goal is not simply to have your kids here in a big room once a week and then they're gone. But we want a full ministry to really aid parents in Christian education in a very broad way, in a very deep way. And so we try to follow the age-graded material in our teaching that's written in a particular way. And this is a good reminder that people need this format and their teaching available to them by the church. And I want to say this about our church, we have excellent teachers 
many of whom uh, teach as a career and then they teach here as well. Others that they just give their lives to teaching here. We use curriculum and we work. And I want you to want to say this: our pastors uh, of our children and students, Evan and Andrew, they're seeking to give you the best resources they can, and they're seeking to plan events that help foster what needs to be fostered according to the age groups and according to the sexes. Few weeks, we're going to be having a daddy daughter banquet for dads and daughters up to the fifth grade. We need to be reminded that we need to teach them according to age, according to their way, their station of life. We also must teach them in relationship to who they are as male and female. Now, I want to say this to you, and I think you probably already know this. Our culture is not our friends in relationship to teaching our boys and our girls about gender roles. Matter of fact, our culture is the enemy. Our culture's lost its mind. You know, in all the different ways it tries to deny gender. I was watching uh, some of the, the advertisements during the basketball tournament. And there was one showing, you know, guys are dribbling basketballs and girls dribbling basketballs and the point was, you know, it's it's not about your gender, it's about the sport, about the athlete. It's not about the gender, but it's about being the athlete, right? Nothing about gender. No, no, no. Gender doesn't matter. But then I scratch my head and I say, do we not have an NCAA women's tournament and an NCAA men's tournament? Because we are not the same. And gender does matter. And as you and I seek to teach our children, we need to focus not on teaching them traditional roles because traditional roles are not necessarily biblical roles. But we need to learn the scriptures about what are the biblical roles for men, what are the biblical roles for women. And we need to begin to try to focus upon teaching them those things and help each other with this. In this church, I love our young families and what they're doing. I'm so proud of them. Man. You're doing a great job. Some of you are single parents. I know you're tired. I watch you. Your life. I know some of your struggles. I am so proud of you, though. I really am. And we pray for you. We're for you. Our staff prays for you. We're concerned for you. And we must help each other in that way. And we must... Have men with our boys teaching their boys and women with our girls teaching our girls. And then also, as we're doing with the daddy-daughter banquet, how should a man treat a woman in that way of beginning to date your daughters and teach them in those things? You know, there's a very strong biblical basis for this in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. I don't have time to read it, but I would encourage you to read it about the training of the older men, the younger men, the younger women to be trained by the older women. And we must teach them God's design for men and women and how to fulfill those roles. There's a very good ministry I want to refer you to, peopled by a lot of Baptists, but not just Baptists. It's called the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And it teaches the biblical complementarian roles for men and for women. You can go to their website, cbmw.org, find resources there. They have conferences from time to time. Read it in a a very good book written some years ago, Recovery of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by Wayne Grudem and others. 
That must be part of the training according to their way in relationship to their genders and also their ages. Another principle, two more, and we're done. As we think about according to their way, we want to try to give them wins. James Dobson, writing some years ago on the importance of esteem in children, encouraged parents to help children find something they can own or excel in or be a part of that has meaning and makes memories. And it can be related sometimes to vocation. Some people interpret this text in relationship to the vocational aspects. Train up a child in the way they should go. Train up a child according to their way. That is how they're bent toward what their vocation will be in their life as you study them. And so this idea would be that we need to help them begin to find something about their identity that plays to their strengths that can flow out into who they are and what they may, do, may be doing as an adult with a good view of themselves. So for some, it may be sports. For others, it may be music. For others, service. What a great opportunity this summer to go on the family mission trip as a family serving the Lord in that way. For some, it may be in the arts. I was so proud the other night of some of our kids at Project Challenge and the Little Mermaid play, both in the play and in the production, the lighting, different things they were doing. That's awesome. And what we need to try to do is to see the way they are and to foster that to the best of our ability and help each other with that as young families. You know, I really see this in your child, your daughter, or your son. Talk to one another. Help each other see those things in them. And you may not always be successful in this in their lives. They may not pick up on something. I had a, one of my children that uh, was probably perhaps the fastest, she would have been the fastest probably girl at perhaps Hannah High School. She inherited what I had when I was young with speed. And she went out one day for one track practice, I think it was one, and said, I don't want to do it because I don't want to sweat. And so... <laughs> She successfully found her identity in other things, but would have saved me a lot of money if she'd got a scholarship. But try to give them wins, you know? And you know what's so awesome about our church? Isn't it wonderful this morning to see students in our orchestra, students and children singing? This place lit up with basketball where they're not just learning competition, they're learning a skill and they're learning Something about moral value in relationship to that. Isn't it great to be able to go on a family mission trip with your kids? And think of all the different service ministries of this church where you can say to your kid, hey, let's go do this together today. And we only want those things to strengthen in our church for our children to have that identity, most of all of who they are in Jesus, but beginning to find things that they can do. Maybe in something working with their hands, whatever it may be. And then finally, according to their way, would remind us to love them individually. Don't make the mistake of favoring, as did Isaac and Rebekah. But take time with each one. Learn how they like to be shown love. If you think about Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, we often apply that to marriage. But it's extremely, and I'll post the article from Focus on the Family this week that summarizes it for you. But think about this in relationship to our children. Spend time with them and build this relationship 
Some children respond great to words of affirmation. That's really what, when you speak words of affirmation, that, that really connects them. Some, it's quality time. Some, it is receiving gifts. Some, acts of service is where they find, I mean, you serve them in some way. Or physical touch, which I think is always important for parents. But some really respond to that. Several years ago, we had Josh McDowell here, a Christian apologist, and who worked a lot also with students, and you can probably still get this message that he spoke on how to build relationships with your kids, seven A's, affirmation, acceptance, appreciation, availability, affection, approach to their world, and accountability. Those things help the kids know that we love them individually according to their way. And I encourage you to go back and get that message. Well, I hope you see as we bring this to a close now that Proverbs 22, verse 6 is not a promise, right? It is not a formula, but there are great principles here that we can apply to our parenting. So I hope when you read that verse from now on, you'll be able to take it and use it in a different way. As we come now to time of commitment, I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and go ahead and stand if you would. And I just want to pray, Lord, for our families today that you would continue to strengthen us as we try to put together somewhat of a composite approach in our lives, Lord, to parenting. Encourage, Lord, every parent today. Some may have come in here today very discouraged. God, help them just to continue to be faithful. Help them to persevere. For our students and children, Lord, that are here in this room, just, God, help them to be thankful to you for good parents. Help our church, Lord, as we try to help one another in this endeavor. Lord, if there are those in the room today who did not grow up with parents that were attentive and caring, and don't know what that was like, help them to know that you're a father who loves them and desires to have a relationship with them, to forgive them, to hold on to them and never let them go, that you've been in pursuit of them for their whole life, perhaps even bring them in this room today. The Lord, they might respond to you and give their life to you. We pray, God, that if there are those you need to add to this church, that you would do so. And we just pray, God, that you continue to grow the ministries here in, Lord, relation to our students and our children. And thank you for the Lord, just more and more numbers that are coming of people we can pour into. And we pray that you continue to bless us as we seek to be faithful to you. Lord, we pray that you administer to anyone who had harbored guilt. And this verse had been like a chain around their neck, a feeling that they had failed. That as we said in the first message, Lord, help them to claim your grace and to understand that this was never what you were saying to them through this verse. Set them free. So now, Lord, we pray you'd bless us as we sing, as we come to you, in Jesus' name, amen.